Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the new Media Lab here at Mesa Community College. Today, we are really privileged to continue our presidential series, meeting with all the presidents across the Maricopa Colleges. And today, we have Dr. Kimberly Britt from Phoenix College, which I believe is our oldest college campus, right? That's correct. Yeah, cool. President Britt, welcome to the new Media Lab. How's your day going? Thank you. It's going well. Good to be here. Thanks yeah. for the invitation. We uh, just showed you our uh, new Media Lab and the plans and work people are doing. What do, you, what do you think about what's offered through this program? I think it's exciting. I have a 21-year-old daughter who does nothing but play podcasts all the time. And it's everything from breakups and Who's the biggest jerk? That's not the word that she used, but that's the word I'll use today. Um, and, you know, a lot on social life as it is now, I guess I would say for younger people. I consider myself young still. So we're going to go younger than I am. Well, she'll be uh, proud of you uh, today. I'm going to make her listen to it. I'm going <laughs> to yeah. say, I've got this podcast that I want to play. Yeah. We're changing it. <laughs> well, we... Uh... You know, over we've had a lot of turnover in uh, presidents in the past decade. Uh, people moving in, moving out, bringing visions, taking visions, creating visions. And one, I I generally try to go in person to the interviews, the public uh, interviews on the presidents across the campuses. I find them very interesting, and uh, I I just like to you know hear what people have to say. But I've noticed a trend that a lot of uh, presidents were previously English teachers, and you were an English teacher, right? Huh. I had noticed that. I was an English faculty for 16 years yeah. in South Carolina. Um, there's always a divide, I think. Uh, we either have a lot of math faculty uh, or prior math faculty, I should say, who seem to make their way into the president role and then English faculty. And we... We um we vote accordingly on all initiatives. I'll think no, I'm just kidding. We don't do that. But I <laughs> now that you mention it, you know the one thing I'll say is it teaches you um you know English faculty often are very global thinkers, and once you rise into the executive level, um it is important to be able to to think globally. I think that that's one of the pieces of the job. Yeah, actually. Yeah, I mean, the, the the global thing is to have a bigger vision, but there's a, a big part of the my book uh, that we that we wrote about the New Media Lab was to serve global learners, mm -hmm. people who, you know, there's a whole theory behind what a global learner is. And it's kind of cool that we've now created a space, you know, for people that don't think traditionally in, in certain ways, but want to expand and be a little more creative and ask questions and stuff like that, you know, Socratic, uh, you know, ways of looking at, at, at things. So, uh, yeah, it just seems like a lot of, from what I, our current president, Tammy Robinson, was English faculty for 20 plus years, you know. So I noticed that on your, on your page here. What else do you think uh, an English teacher would bring to being a, a president? I'll say I chose English just because my um, high school English teacher was influential in me 
surviving high school, and I say literally surviving high school, I had tried to take my own life a couple of times. Um, and that was the whole reason I wanted to be an English teacher is because she changed my life. I originally was going to teach K-12, and I got six weeks into my student teaching, and I was like, ooh, yeah, this is not for me. I don't know that what you major in predicts who you become as a leader or where you go or, or how high you go. You know, um, I was at AAC this weekend, and I heard that uh, chemistry and biology uh, faculty make excellent administrators. I, I think the thing is balance, uh, being able to be strategic, understand data. Um, you know, I'm middle brain, so I took um, SAT twice, and each time you could divide my score by two. I took the GRE before I got my uh, master's degree in English and after, and my score went up, but you could still divide it by two. Um, so, you know, I, technically I'm middle brain. I probably lean a little bit more toward verbal than I do, um, you know, math, math studies. But I thought statistics would be the one thing that would keep me from getting my PhD. And I had 100 in stats one, so I took stats two and I did it again. So I have to work harder for it. Um, and, and I think leadership is less about what you study uh, and... Um, how you engage and interact with people, because I, I firmly believe that first we lead people, and then second we lead initiatives. Um, the last profile, leadership profile, I did confirm that. I think I was in the 97th, 98th percentile for people and leading people. And that probably has more to do with growing up in foster care and living with a diverse group of uh, young people in a group home um, and the travels um, were limited for me um, in terms of cultural development. I don't, you know, I didn't get to leave the county I was in very much um, until I actually went into foster care. And I think uh, the experiences of living with the group, uh, diverse group of people, uh, helped to mold who I eventually became. And we were all equal. We had all been abused. We all had absolutely nothing. Um, and so we clung together, but it teaches you a lot about relying on other people in a life where you fought for independence because you couldn't depend on the people that you needed the most. So I don't know if it's what you study, but how you grow through what you study that really directs where you go and, and how you lead. Um, I've met a lot of, uh, presidents who are ineffective because they couldn't work with people. Um, and at the end of the day, we lead people. And so it makes a difference. What a beautiful thing to say. We, yesterday, we, our students, uh, we put out a podcast on mental wellness. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they were, they, were, they were talking about off camera and stuff about, you know, they want, they want to be seen as a person, you know, as a, as a human being. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in lately when the big push around systems government, governance, uh, you know, I keep bringing this up, you know, no, it, we, it's humans, it's people, it's not systems are not, people are not objects, you know, they have, and they need to be validated in that way too. So I am just glad to hear all of that. That is wonderful. And you, and you got out in front of me a little bit because 
here uh, on your uh, public page for everyone to see, you have chose to uh, write out that a part of your history is living in group homes for uh, children who had been abused. That is one of the most, when I read that, I was like, man, that's really vulnerable and really brave. Could you tell us a little bit about your thought process of why you chose to make that public in this way? Sure. Uh, I've been encouraged over the years to share my story. And pain is pain. Poverty is poverty. Uh, obstacles are obstacles. And one of the reasons that I tell that story is for students to understand that no matter where they are, they can go far. Where, where we come from doesn't determine where we go. And I firmly believe that. Um, you know, and we were talking when I first came in the room, you know, uh, I'm at a Hispanic serving institution, but how I relate to our students is the, the long road back coming from pretty much nothing and with little resources and without even family support, I made it. And so can they, because there's nothing extraordinary about me. There's nothing extraordinary about my life. It, it has to do with the people who helped me along the way and who we should lean into. And so I share that story because students who read about me might see whatever doubts that they have, whatever imposter syndrome that they may have for being in uh, higher ed, that they might take a little nugget of wisdom away uh, from that line. And certainly when I speak to students, I talk about that, um, particularly at orientation. Um, because they do, they see themselves in people who are like them, and that goes well beyond race. That goes into life experience as well. Uh, and I do, I think it's very important that they know um, that there is a life out there waiting for them. And so that's why I choose to, to share that. I also have found that um, probably one of the greatest attributes we can have as leaders, if we want to connect, um, and impact people is for them to understand our life journey. Um, I often can have a very reserved look on my face sometimes. Um, I'm a bit of an introvert, and I can point to that life experience. But what I do have when I share uh, stories like this or when I lost my daughter um, is for people to see and to understand that I am a human being and we connect on a human level. If you want to lead people, if you want to build greatness within an institution, you're going to be far, far more successful if they see you as a human being and you see them. The ability to be vulnerable is the greatest strength you can have. What people really see is a human, and it is a bonding point because the number of people at the college who have adopted a foster kid, or maybe they're raising a niece or a nephew, is higher than you might think. Yeah, outstanding. Yeah, outstanding. We have in here, we try to always have food available in the New Media Lab for our students. Sometimes we forget that our students, you know, are struggling to have food, to gas in the car to get here. And so, you know, yesterday, and even this morning when I woke up, I was, you know, just really deeply moved, you know, that when our students come on campus, we, I mean, it's almost like we need to applaud them every day, you know, clap and 
like you're here and that in and of itself is absolutely amazing they've put their trust in us to make their lives better and i can i cannot think of any higher calling than that yeah one of one of the initiatives i started this year is brit's bears um the bears is an acronym obviously it is our mascot but it's an acronym for brave extraordinary and resilient students this was to round out the work with uh, bridging success to build a sense of community for foster youth i also advocated for the first foster youth convocation this year, which I'm proud to say we are rolling out in America, but it will, it will be May 1st at Phoenix College in, in our theater. But I think it's important, um, just as we do with all of our other identity groups, to realize that there's a subcategory of all of these. And that's, you know, uh, our foster youth who, you know, are the most at risk of the most underserved. They truly are. Um, and so being able to celebrate and invite all students to that convocation because they'll be able to see themselves in the foster youth who are completing and walking across stage. And I, I think that's very important. Yeah, this notion of students seeing themselves in, in their leadership, I think is that starting to gain a lot more momentum, you know, that people are going to stop accepting the answers they've been given in the past. You know, sure. it's, it's like, it's like this thing. I mean, I've been in a classroom 27 years now. When I was an undergraduate, I asked the same question at my college. Like, how come there are no Indian people working here in any capacity? And they would say, well, if you can find the qualified person, let me know. Well, how do people get qualified if they can't get, you know, ever get their foot in the door? One of the things is we were talking, I mean, you can develop that talent from within you, you know, when you get and hire someone in, you, know, you can groom faculty for dean positions, which we've done uh, at Phoenix College. Now they're on the, they're ready to step into a vice president role. Right. Um, and so if you're not having great success in recruiting talent, then your other option is to grow your talent. And if you look at our dean bench at Phoenix College, you'll see that it is 100% diverse. Um, and heavily Hispanic. And, you know, we're really proud of that because we are grooming the next level yeah. of vice presidents. The other way, what we hope we can do is recruit talent. And so you have to be competitive. You have to look at our salaries in comparison uh, to other regions in the country for those administrative positions and how competitively, how competitive are we in the financial space? Because if, if you're a minority and you're going for executive positions, you know, you're going to be highly favored and considered. You're going to have some choice. So are you going to go somewhere where the salary is equal to another college district, but the cost of living is significantly higher? What would you do? So there is a competition space. And I'm not making excuses, but I am saying those are some of the challenges that, that lay ahead for us. We've got to be competitive. And when you look at the housing market and that sort of thing, you know, for example, um, a vice president here makes the same as a vice president uh, in South Carolina, where I was a faculty for a number of years. But uh, you know, a $500,000 home in South Carolina is probably going to run you about $3 million in Phoenix. And you can go and look that up. That makes it hard 
to, you know, get robust pools, much less robust, diverse pools in executive roles. That's part of the struggle, I would say, for Maricopa. And, you know, people have to live and support their families. And, um, you know, it, it just becomes, I think, more challenging um, now more than ever. It doesn't mean that it shouldn't be at the forefront of our thought, uh, but every VP I have is internal to Maricopa. It's something I, I agree with. Our students need to see themselves, but I was in a Hispanic advisory committee that I formed on our campus today to have conversations like just like these. And, um, you know, one of my faculty who teaches Spanish at um, Phoenix College said, we have to build out our adjunct bench if we want to impact our residential and tenured faculty bench uh, in diverse ways, because I would say of four of the five last faculty I hired were in an adjunct or an OIO role. Um, students spend most of their time in the classroom, and so we're really focusing on that faculty level. It doesn't mean that we're ignoring other positions at the college, but we're really focusing on uh, increasing the diversity in our faculty and equitably across departments, particularly in those uh, frontline classes, those critical classes that lead you into other programs. So it's, it's a complicated piece, um, but I think we have to understand what's holding us back so that we can work on that. I, I hope that helps some. Sure. Yeah. I also think we could do a lot better at the lower end of our staff, you know, a little more support for those guys. They work really hard and Sometimes, you know, enrollment, they're the first face people see. You know, they're not going to be buying any $3 million houses anytime soon. So our economic uh, package here in Arizona could use a little help. Uh, but well, I just think we have such outstanding people, and that's what makes Maricopa so we do. just we have an a, amazing place to work. We have at. extraordinary uh, talent. And, you know, the closer to the front line you go at Phoenix College, the more diverse our bench becomes. Um, and that's true in every area. Um, and then once you get up to that mid-level leader, deans, we do well. Once you get beyond that, we start struggling a little bit more as an institution. Um, we are um, anywhere from 55 to 60 percent Hispanic students, depending on where we are with enrollment and random pandemics that roll through affect those numbers. Um, but we're making significant progress. We've tripled the number of degrees. Um, and even though we've increased the number of Hispanic students we serve, we still haven't closed um, the equitable outcome gap. We've held it steady for about five years, whereas other races, Native American, uh, our, our black students, Asian Pacific Islander, we've reduced those gaps by about 50%. Um, really? So, yeah, we've gone wow. from like a 17% gap to 9%. So something we're doing is working yeah. in the space. Now, as I said, we've grown in the number of Hispanic students, but the gap has not closed. That's why I was meeting with my advisory committee, because we're doubling down on those efforts. You know, so we look at the district WIG to increase the number of completions, but also to increase completion for all students within Maricopa. So that, that's something we certainly are focused on. As I was going through your vision, mission, and value statement, what I really, really like about your vision, mission, and value statement is 
on all of these, you're talking about bringing everybody along, you know, their dreams, reaching their goals. Um, one of my favorite uh, people in history is John F. Kennedy. Uh, I think because I was born, my birthday was the day before he was assassinated or after assassinated. And I had, me and my brother had met Bobby Kennedy and Rosie Greer in L.A. at a gas station. And we were hanging around where he was assassinated. And, and so as a real young kid, I just had this connection with these guys that I, I, don't, I don't know why, but uh, I did. And then when I got older, I read a lot about them. And one of the things John F. Kennedy would always say was that for him to be successful, he had to make everyone around him successful. And that's, I think, is such an important principle uh, in the doggy dog world of, you know, life and all of that, like is to commit yourself to making others successful. And then later, I read Greenspan's book about Nixon. And when uh, Nick, they, when he formed his cabinet, he told him, now look, we just hired the smartest, the most ambitious people in the country. And if we don't give them something to do, they're going to turn on us. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like managing ambition, you know, is a real, real, real art form. But anything, because my dad is Katua, I go home to uh, work with my tribal uh, council if we're developing a lot of really cool stuff in, in, in our culture and in our language. That's what it's all about mm -hmm. is the community as a whole. The in, individual expression is encouraged, but, 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 you know, everybody eating out of the same pot and, and, and grow, you know, eating out of the same garden and like those old, old indigenous values this sense that, uh, you know, we're in this together, you know, in this bigger, bigger picture of things and to, you know, make sure everybody has the things they need to, to be happy and healthy, you know, and live a good life. So every time I see this kind of language here, it really draws me in and makes me feel good that people, you know, and, and, and educators, I think, are just built that way. You know, we, teachers especially, I mean, we come to school and you, know, you just give it all away. You, you're here to make other people's lives better. I don't, I don't know what, just a great, you know, profession to be in. Um, and as we work your way through your statements, you have this sense of core values. I'd like to know in one of your um, core values, you list the word integrity. What does that mean to you, integrity and leadership? Because I hear you all have to make hard decisions all the time, you know? Well, what does that mean, integrity and in, in leadership? I think it's accountability. It's accountability to um, those that you're there to serve. Um, if you're doing it right, there's transparency that accompanies those commitments. Um, and um, including... Uh, everyone at the college. Um, sometimes that's the longer road, but it almost always yields the best um, mm. product. Um, and so, I, you know, I think integrity is when you have to disagree with a committee, being very transparent in your thoughts um, and 
being accountable to the people that you serve in this leadership role, carrying your weight. That's integrity. It's more than you know, being honest. Um, it, it goes into levels of commitment as administrators uh, to the people that we are, are brought to serve, um, being accountable to them, um, supporting them, being transparent with our decisions. That's integrity. Really being open and honest and vulnerable um, with those that you're serving. Yeah, I think uh, I'm all about transparency, but I'm learning about what that means. Because sometimes it seems like there's two things going on. There's what's really going on, and then it's sort of what we're you know trying to envision what's going on. But I love this uh, transparency uh, notion because I think that's what we again that's what we teach, right? Information and knowledge and and draw people in it, they can make their best decisions having the best amount of information, you know. But I understand there's the HR component to leadership and, and all of that sort of stuff that y you just can't be, you know, telling everything all the time of what's going on, that there has to be a professionalism, a practice around what transparency is happening. You know, well, to know. that HR point, the only thing yeah. I don't share with my faculty are personnel matters. Yeah, I keep those separate um, yeah. for legal reasons. Um, once the embargo is lifted, if it comes from district, I'm sharing it. But most things, my faculty know what is going on, and they're at the table. Um, I, you know, that's one of the hallmarks of my leadership. Um, shared governance here I, I, is on the second page of notes. And one of the things that I'll tell you is that trust and integrity comes from the full rollout with shared governance. I never mm. go to people and say, we're doing this. This is what we're going to do. I go to my faculty and staff and say, I have this problem to solve. And I need your support in helping me to solve it. And sometimes it may be, it's not a problem. And here's why it's not a problem. And sometimes people are like, okay. But we've got to put this behind initiative two. Um, and so they comment on timing. But I cannot tell you the number of people um, that I've interviewed at other colleges within Maricopa who want to come to Phoenix College to work because of our shared governance. If I interview a faculty member from another institution, they say you don't just have shared governance statements on your website, you actually live it. And I think that speaks to the integrity. You know, I have um, a council uh, comprised of Native American staff and faculty who advise me. Um, I'm obviously not Native American. I'm obviously, a, a, you know, a, a white woman. And so including people um, who represent their constituent groups in meetings with me to help me guide as we work through initiatives. Um, and I, I think that's important, but that's also part of shared governance. Um, and sometimes we have formal shared governance processes, having those advisory groups so that uh, voices are heard, even if staff may not be on the budget steering team, this particular staff, it enables me to have regular conversations with constituent groups, um, just as I do with students. Uh, faculty impact student success. Um, that the power of one faculty on the success of a student is profound. 
Now, I, I don't want to anger any uh, advisors and student affairs professionals out there because we know that we are developing a whole student. But the single greatest predictor of whether a student makes it or not is their experience in their relationships with faculty. Um, and so as we worked on uh, my first year, I worked on that shared governance task force at district. And now I'm doing, you know, rolling it out in full uh, full development at Phoenix College, and it's one of the pieces that I am most proud of because it does include people. Um, you know, I was thinking of your um, description earlier of everybody eating out of the same pot. Well, what we know is, um, you know, we can bring every, everybody describes shared governance as a table. I can bring you to the table, and I might never call on you. Uh, I might give you a bad view, put your weight on at the end, and you can't hear. Um, and so um, it was one of the things that I learned from one of our theater faculty when I observed her class is that um, all tables and all seats at the table are not created equally, and it is up to us. That's where integrity kicks in mm. um, to make sure that everybody who is at that table feels included and knows that they have a voice um, and um, is in a place where they can see see what's going on, understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, and there is not this sidebar process that's going. So, I, I, you know, I agree with you a, a great deal. I think it's incredibly important, especially today, uh, because as we continue to increase the number of diverse faculty and uh, student affairs professionals and administrators, it's very important that we begin to see education through their lens because so many of them are first generation and they can help us see barriers that we're putting up that we might not be aware of. So that's why shared governance is so, so important. Very, very impressive here to hear the, you know, the, what's happening down at Phoenix College. If you're out there and you're on the midtown or central uh, part of Phoenix and you're looking for a great community college to kick your education uh, off, we encourage you to go visit Phoenix College college and thomas and seventh and the, the campus if you've not been there it's just absolutely beautiful uh campus and we want everybody to to you know if you're in that area you should go visit and, and talk to an advisor and you have some great staff great faculty um sounds like we've got some really great leadership happening down there too you know i Shared governance, I'm not so sure about it yet, uh, just because I still think there's this sort of parallel thing going on a lot of times. And just because we've had so much change, you know, you know, people moving in and out, it's hard to get a good pace going with someone, you know. But uh, again, when we, when we talk about shared governance, you go back to... Uh, Iroquois Confederacy, the Great Law of Peace, where we talk about consensus governance, you know. Everybody's at the table, but people agree uh, that maybe, you know, in this decision, they won't get everything that they want, right? They are, and they're willing to give it up because there is the trust value that we are, you know, maybe my one lens isn't, you know, at this time, in this moment, the right thing. And so you trust, okay, I'm going to give up what, you know, needs to happen today, but because I know that my time will come, you know, and that, but that takes years and, and a lot of people working together and it takes integrity to do consensus 
uh, leadership, which leads to this last part I want to talk about that you have on your part here is we lead with courage. Now, that can lead us in all kinds of different ways of thinking about governance and leadership. You know, what is courage? So what is courage in Phoenix College leadership? Doing the right thing, even if it is painful. That's courage. The strongest leaders that I know are also very vulnerable um, as people. How so? Um, How so? Um, if you look at people who are extraordinarily successful, who have been through some stuff in their life, if they get to the other side and they heal, uh, they tend to become rather solid leaders because they know themselves, they know their own personal weaknesses, and they're okay with it. Um, you know, I, I remember when I interviewed with Klein Namuo, who was the interim president um, and now is president at Joliet uh, College, I interviewed with him um, a little over a year after my daughter died. Um, she uh, took her own life. And everybody who looked at my resume said, why are you applying to Phoenix College to be a vice president? You clearly should be stepping into the presidential space. And I said uh, to Klein um, and to other faculty who asked me that question, it takes a deep reserve is required to be a president. Um, and I shared with Klein that I've healed, but I need to build my reserve before I step into a presidency. But I say all of this, that some of what develops us is what we've been through and what we've seen. Leadership is about humans, and I'll go back to something I said earlier. Leadership is about human beings first. That doesn't mean we don't roll out and do the work of our strategic plan, all of those things, but you have to be able to take care of people first and build those relationships and, and build that trust. That takes courage because courage is admitting, oh, I failed on this, I didn't get this quite right. Courage is saying we've got some hard work to do and being able to go into a room and disagree but still respect one another as individuals. That requires courage. Um, there's no space for arrogance in leadership, especially in higher levels of leadership. They're there because they're probably A-types and go-getters, and I know the answers. Whereas shared governance requires courage. It, at, from a leadership standpoint, it requires compassion. When you've gone through uh, things in life and you've healed, uh, you do develop a compassion. That's that vulnerability piece. But it is courageous to roll that out. You asked me why I put um, my life experience. It never occurred to me not to because I've healed from it because I want people to know who I am as a human being because then we connect on that human level. And so I really believe that uh, courage is strength and integrity combined. Having courageous conversations uh, around difficult topics, around areas where we need to improve, but doing that collectively and authentically as a group, that requires strong leadership and a strong human being who is confident and, and competent uh, to be in the role, but not arrogant. Mm -hmm. um, 
arrogant sometimes is the absence of courage and doesn't necessarily work at any level of the shared governance process. We have to be able to, as you say, reach consensus. And that's the model I would argue that faculty at Phoenix College would, would say that we, that we have. We're not perfect, uh, but we are, we are definitely moving in the direction that we need to go in that space. And I think our students uh, are going to be the benefactors of that. I really do. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Yes, consensus, again, it comes down from uh, the Iroquois Confederacy, the Great Law of Peace, where tribes uh, would come together, nations or clans would come together once or twice a year to discuss the state of uh, the, the Union. And this is where Jefferson and Franklin and all of them got the notion of democracy, American democracy, and uh, the word caucus is, uh, is the word that, that, you know, the elders and the tribes, like for us, we, in our, we have the, our old villages, there's uh, these big poles and they're either painted white or they're painted red. And when they're painted red, it means we were at war and people forget how hard indigenous people fought, you know, for many, many years. You're talking the American Revolution, the Civil War, the you know, everything in between. And so people needed to communicate, and this was what was called caucus. And I really love consensus, especially when you see it working, when you can really see everyone at the table is invested in the, you know, what's best for everybody outside here. They don't have their individual agenda going on. It is the most beautiful thing ever. But you need a healthy society for that. You need you a healthy people. You need a uh, there's a great book I would recommend. Uh, I like to be reading three books always. And my current book I just started is Braiding Sweetgrass. You should check it out. It talks all about that sort of stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming and joining the New Media Lab podcast presidential series of Eddie Webb. And we are here with uh, President Britt from Phoenix College. It has been a pleasure to talk with you. We like to give our guests the one final word. What would you like to say to our listeners? I would say to anyone, whether they've earned their degree or they want to get another degree or they want to take a step in their career, that you can be anything that you want. I always tell people that the trick to getting there is to chase your purpose, never chase positions. That's critical because positions will come as you are acting authentically on your passions. And so whether you're a student thinking of coming to Phoenix College, um, whether you're uh, a mom who wants to go back and, and get a master's degree or a bachelor's degree and you have children to keep up with, chase your purpose and your passions first. The rest will come if you stay committed to that. Great words of wisdom, young folks. Hosta, hawa hawa, in my dad's language, they always say dona e, which means uh, I'll see you again and take care of each other out there. We are all we have. Thank you.
royalty-free audio, Grinoline Dreams by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. You can find more of his work at incompetech.com. The Maricopa County Community College District, MCCCD, is an EEO-AA institution and an equal opportunity employer of protected veterans and individuals with disabilities. All qualified applicants will receive consideration for employment without regard to race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, age, or national origin. A lack of English language skills will not be a barrier to admission and participation in the career and technical education programs of the district. The Maricopa County Community College District does not discriminate on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, disability, or age in its programs or activities. For Title IX 504 concerns, call the following number to reach the appointed coordinator, 480-731-8499. For additional information, as well as the listing of all coordinators within the Maricopa College System, please visit maricopa.edu slash non-discrimination.